0: Straight Talk from Israel.
1: You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for the 1st of February 2022, which in the Hebrew calendar is the 30th of Shvat 5782. I am Walter Bingham. Not a week goes by in Israel without some sensational event. Convicted criminal member of Knesset and leader of the Shash party, Aryeh Deri, has been convicted a second time. And that despicable individual Knesset member, Yair Golan, has repeated his vile words describing our religious Zionist youth as subhuman. There is an assessment of our economy today and where our government is leading us. You will hear two definitions of moral turpitude, that definition that Benjamin Netanyahu wants to avoid if he is agreeing to a plea bargain. But I begin with some background about International Holocaust Memorial Day, which we commemorated last Thursday. That'll be followed by an interview about the German railways, the facilitator of the Holocaust. But I begin with this. On the 27th of January, the Enlightened World commemorated International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Somber ceremonies were held in many countries, and heads of state repeated the phrase, never again. Unfortunately, little is done by the international community to stem the growth of anti-Semitism, making these words sound hollow. The date was chosen because the notorious Nazi extermination camp Auschwitz-Birkenau was liberated by Soviet troops on January the 27th in 1945. And you will hear the words of the commander of those troops. A minimum of 1.3 million people were deported there between 1940 and 1945. Of these, at least 1.1 million were murdered, mainly by poison gas, and then incinerated in ovens. Almost unimaginable. That day of liberation was designated by the United Nations General Assembly, Resolution 60-7, stroke on the 1st of November, 2005, to remember the genocide of six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust perpetrated by Nazi Germany between 1941 and 1945, organized by people who swore the Hippocratic Oath to uphold the highest standards of ethics. And now, here is Walter Bingham. The order to carry out the final solution, the code name for the systematic, deliberate, physical annihilation of the Jews, first in Europe and subsequently in other parts of the world, that would fall under Nazi German domination, was initially given on July 31, 1941, when Nazi leader Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring issued orders to SS-Obergruppenführer, that's Lieutenant General, Reinhard Heydrich, and uh, he was also chief of the RSHA, the Reich Security Main Office. And some described him as the darkest figure of Nazi hierarchy. He was ordered to prepare and expedite a comprehensive plan that envisioned to eradicate some 11 million Jews as part of the Nazi program. Heydrich convened a conference on January the 27th, 1942, when 15 high-ranking Nazi party and German government officials met at a palatial villa in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee to discuss and coordinate the implementation of what they called the final solution of the Jewish question. It is said that at some Still undetermined time, in 1941, Adolf Hitler Yamachshemoy authorized this European-wide scheme for mass murder, although his name does not appear on any of the relevant documents. Heydrich convened the conference, and the 15 participants at the infamous Wannsee Conference were he himself plus SS Major General Heinrich Müller, Chief of the Reichssicherheitshauptamt, that's the uh, the, uh, RSHA, Department 4, Gestapo. SS Lieutenant Colonel Adolf Eichmann, Chief of the RSHA, Department 4B4, Jewish Affairs. SS Colonel Eberhard Schoengard, Commander of the RSHA Field Office for the Government General in Krakow in Poland. SS Major Rudolf Lange, commander of RSHA Einsatzkommando II, deployed in Latvia in the autumn of 1941, and SS Major General Otto Hoffmann, the chief of SS Race and Settlement Main Office. Representing the agencies of the state were State Secretary Ronald Freisler, Minister of Justice, Ministerial Director Wilhelm Kritzinger, Reich's Cabinet, State Secretary Alfred Meyer, Reich Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories, the German-occupied USSR, Ministerial Director Robert Leibrand, Reich Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories, Under Secretary of State Martin Luther, Foreign Office, State Secretary Wilhelm Stuckart, Ministry of Interior, State Secretary Erich Neumann, Office of Plenipotentiary for the Four-Year Plan, State Secretary Josef Bühler, Office of the Government of the Governor-General, German-Occupied Poland, and Ministerial Director Gerhard Klopfer of the Nazi Party Chancellery. The goal of the conference was to disclose to the participants that Hitler himself had tasked Heinrich and the RSHA with coordinating the operation. It was not to deliberate whether such a plan should be undertaken, but instead to discuss the implementation of a policy decision that had already been made at the highest level of the Nazi regime. It was Soviet troops under the command of Vasilyev Petrenko that liberated Auschwitz, where they saw more than 7,000 remaining prisoners who were mostly ill and dying. Petrenko was subsequently promoted to general. Many years ago he was honored at a Jewish event in London, where I sat with him when he told me how proud he is that his actions are remembered and that he hoped the Holocaust would never be forgotten. Here are two and a half minutes of what he told me in Russian. The translator was his editor, Dr. Ilya Altman.
2: Сегодня день 27 uh, января день Auschwitz Auschwitz вот жертв фашизма, которые были уничтожены или замучены концлагерем Свенцем uh, и которые мне удалось, так сложилась судьба принять участие в освобождении. So it had happened that I was uh, one of them who was liberated, who
1: liberated Auschwitz. Uh, General, I remember well some years ago at the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz when you came to London and you uh, delivered this wonderful speech. Why are you not speaking today?
2: Пять лет назад вы были здесь, и мне очень приятно, что вы снова у нас. Мне очень приятно быть в вонде второй раз. It was very pleasure for me second time visited England and met again with the, uh, some person that remembered me. Здесь все люди правильно понимают, что такое Голопоз, что такое день. It's very important that in this country everybody remember it, how it's important to remember about the Holocaust, and this Memorial Day today, to, it's a good example for my country too. Best wishes to Jewish community.
1: Thank you very much, General, and I must say, uh, at your age you look resplendent in your uniform.
2: Uh, спасибо, best wishes Надеюсь, I, hope, I hope that many friends that remember it me, maybe they will listen my voice and I will send the best wishes to everybody to be today with us.
1: There are lots of men and women here who were liberated by you at Auschwitz, and uh, I'm sure they will be forever grateful to you. you. I have many thank you. Thank you. Best wishes. His name will forever live on in the annals of Jewish history. Auschwitz-Birkenau served as the paradigm for all the camps. According to statistics by the German Ministry of Justice, about 1200 camps and sub-camps were run in countries occupied by Nazi Germany, while the Jewish Virtual Library estimates that the number of Nazi camps Including subcamps, it was closer to 15,000 in all occupied Europe. The subcamps were locations where, for instance, underground tunnels were dug, like the factory for the V 1 and V 2 rockets. Jewish slave laborers were used until they were too weak and died. Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist, was in charge. Following the war, he was arrested as a war criminal and instead of sitting on the benches at the Nuremberg War Crimes Trial, he was shipped to the United States and honored as the builder of the U.S. space rockets. That was the morality of the American government then. The atrocities were forgotten. It was all about winning the space race. Today's actions of Biden's government at the southern border are about gaining votes for their party. The long-term economic implications are ignored. Is there a moral difference? According to a news release about the commemoration of International Holocaust Memorial Day held by our president, Isaac Herzog, this year's theme is Railways to the Abyss, the deportation of Jews during the Holocaust. That is an occasion for me to repeat here My interview with the curator of the German Railway Museum in Berlin. The German railways were a key element in Hitler's systematic extermination of millions. Without their participation, it would not have been possible to do anything near to the same extent. As history unfolds, there are always subjects that are new and throw light on how this factory of death was made possible. Today I want to talk about just one facet of the operation. In fact, it is the one on which the whole operation depended. In order to facilitate this, the greatest atrocity of recent times, many of the victims had to be transported great distances across Europe, and that was the task of the Deutsche Reichsbahn, the German railway system, I am pleased to have on the telephone from Berlin the man who knows more than any other about the history of railways during the Nazi era, Alfred Gottwald. He is the leading German rail historian and the curator of that part of the German Museum of Traffic and Technique in Berlin that deals with traffic on tracks, in other words, the rail system. Welcome to the programme, Herr Gottwald. Hello, Mr. Binger. I notice from the map that the museum is situated by the side of a railway line. Is this of significance for the exhibits?
0: Yes, of course. The railway objects are based in an old uh, railway shed, and that means we can show all the railway objects in their what we call natural background. And there is a railway line from Berlin to Prague.
1: And that's the one on which your museum is situated. The network was extensively used to transport Jews and other enemies of the state from many parts of Nazi-occupied Europe to extermination and labor camps. How were such trains integrated into the general timetables?
0: Well, it was always a task for the railway company to slots in the timetable for accidental transportation. One of the accidental transportation demands was, of course, the army and others were school parties or a circus that would travel by train and these ordinary railway officers who dealt with special trains also dealt with trains that were asked for by the Reichsführer SS and his staff. So join me, Steve Miller, and me, Matt Zucker, for a lighting up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com.
1: And now, here is Walter Bingham. And these ordinary railway officers who dealt with special trains also dealt
0: with trains that were asked for by the Reichsführer SS and his staff. They had to apply for a train and about 95% of all applications were answered positively.
1: I believe that such trains had the lowest priority and were often held in sidings for long periods. Sometimes in sweltering heat, causing extreme discomfort for the victims. Was there no other scheduling involved?
0: question because there is very little information about how the inhabitants of the car were supplied with water. We know from uh, people who have survived that type of transportation that they suffered tremendously, but there are very little uh, paper records or records from the accompanying railway officials or police officials.
1: Was anybody notified because sometimes the journey took 48 hours or more?
0: The Jews that were to deported were told by their organization or by the police, bring food for three days. So that would normally cope for what the trip was intended, but water normally was not brought along in sufficient quantities. It is clear that you cannot bring water or anything to drink for two or three days. So normally the train
1: would stop in between and people would get water. This is obviously a good business for the railway, the charge per person or who paid
0: the surprising thing it was a business as usual that is to say the price for transportation is composed of the number of people in the train and the length of travel in kilometers and as that was a big number and a big value the Reichsführer SS would get a 50% discount on third-class rail fare
1: The Reichsführer SS was, of course, Heinrich Himmler, who was in overall charge.
0: Yes, he was in overall charge, and his office stamp was the office stamp above Heydrich, who was the chief of the secret police, or above Adolf Eichmann, who was the officer in charge of transportation and logistics of the SS.
1: What can you tell us about the use of the rolling stock, and how such trains were organized? where sometimes passenger cars used?
0: In the beginning, ordinary third-class cars were used, like for a holiday train, for a number of reasons. The first reason was that the annihilation of the Jews had not yet come to such a rough style as one year later. So in the autumn of 1941, passenger cars were used. And in very particular, the army would have such a strong demand for freight cars that no freight cars were available. This changed over the early months of 1942, when it was clear that the roughness, the quality of transportation, if I may use that word, became worse by months and months. And a new quality, if I may use the word of transportation, came into existence for the Polish Jews. They were transported over shorter distances and with much more violence. They were often killed before entering the train. They were killed in the ghettos. That was a completely different manner of behavior of the German police than you could observe it within the German Reich. I'm not going to say that any of the behavior within the German Reich was decent, but within Poland it was much worse, and that type of behavior and of aggression against the Jews that reflected backwards into the other areas, like France or the Netherlands or uh, the Deutsches Reich.
1: Who was guarding the trains and how many guards were there?
0: There was a standard and that was up to one officer and 12 to 15, what we call green police. That's not the secret police that were also directing the road traffic and so on. They were ordinary men, ordinary policemen.
1: And did they have a car for themselves at the end of the train?
0: Most of the time it was in the middle of the train. There were no communication means from one car to the other. These police officers would often leave their car and get onto the platform when the car accidentally would stop at a platform of a station.
1: Were there ever any mishaps or train accidents?
0: There is one description of a a train accident in Poland, and there was a survey of the attorney of state on the reasons of the accident, and on the question even why the guards were shooting on passengers. But of course, this court case was closed down as soon as it was clear that those passengers had no rights anyway. They were trying to flee the car when the cars were demolished.
1: Were there any other breakouts or resistance en route?
0: Much in transports from Germany, but we know that, for example, some Jews from France, sailorsmen, who were strong and young, tried to escape from the cars, and they went off the car close to Frankfurt on Main, but within about a week, they were rounded up by the locals, since it was pretty obvious that a male person of 25 or 30, not wearing a uniform, simply was not allowed to exist within the German Reich. There was also a train from Brussels going to uh, Auschwitz, where some young Polish Jews that were not on the train halted the train by a false signal, and they opened some of the cars, and I think 200 people ran away, but they were facing the same problem. There was hardly any infrastructure within occupied Belgium, to support them for a longer period. So most of them were rounded up within a
1: fortnight. Now, back to the museum. Apart from a large model railway set and the general rail exhibits one would expect, what does the museum show about these infamous trains?
0: It was part of my particular and personal occupation when I entered the job that the role of the German railways during the Third Reich would be much larger than in any other museum of the time. Particularly since we are only a mile away from all the central offices of railways and police and government in the Third Reich. And so it was clear that we would once have a wartime austerity locomotive. And we would also have a, what we call a boxed car, that is a freight car for cattle and grain and so on a symbol for the use of the railways for deportation in the years from 1942 onward. since our museum started having a boxcar on display many colleagues from other museums have come here and asked for help in getting a car for their own collection the character of a boxcar as a symbol for the holocaust has been promoted by the deutsches Ethnic museum very strongly
1: Do you have any audio of the things that happened? The kind of things you told me now?
0: We have a lot of explanatory plates around the car with pictures, and we have a video screen, an interactive screen, where you can ask questions and get answers. We don't have it all in the the railway exhibit. Any audio texts, we expect people to look and to read themselves. It would be too noisy.
1: Do you show any lists of transports at all?
0: We have a large list of the transports from Germany and a map with transports from different countries all over Europe. This is all we can do at that very particular spot.
1: Are the numbers of people that were transported shown in those lists?
0: Oh yes, of course. The calculation that we have conducted beforehand come up to roughly 3 million, 50% of all Jews that were killed in World War II, were conveyed by railways before their annihilation. And we give figures for the different countries and within Germany we give figures for every city.
1: What are the reactions or the responses of people for that particular part of the exhibit?
0: Well, I would hesitate to say it's a good response, but what we can see is that many visitors are taken, they are impressed. We were fearing in the beginning that many people would ask, what has that got to do with railway history? But the question is not asked. I think all the visitors understand that this is an important part of German railways.
1: Has the museum ever interviewed any railway staff that was involved?
0: You must keep in mind that uh, the museum was only opened in 1988. That would mean that every railway officer who was part of that logistical program would have been 80 years or older. And we know, like from the film of Claude Landsmann, that they are very hesitating to answer. But you may know that German police and justice officers have uh, interviewed many railway officers to a very limited results. Most of them were saying, oh, I could only look forward when I was driving a locomotive, or I would sign all the timetables without reading them. That was typical German bureaucracy, lies, and I did not think it was sensible to repeat these interviews 20 years later.
1: Who was in overall charge of the railway?
0: Well, there was a transport minister, Julius Stockmüller, he was quite an old man, he had his 75th birthday in 1944. And that is the first thing you can criticize about him. Why would he remain in office, though he had the right to retire? But he was a work addict, an alcohol addict. He was an addict of Hitler in a way. It's a very complicated question. And the most interesting fact is that right after the end of Hitler, General Eisenhower would ask uh, Julius Dortmüller to rebuild the German Revolution. So far. Long time, all other German railwaymen would say, oh, Dobmüller has been given a free pass by Eisenhower, so what do you want from me? In fact, Eisenhower was not acquainted to the details, and he obviously thought it was more important to have a running railway operating system than bringing Dobmüller to custody straight away.
1: And they didn't know about the history of Werner von Braun either. Or they didn't want to know. Oh
0: yes, and many others. Doc Müller died in 1945 and the second man in the Raves, a man by the name of Müller, he knew that they would chase him and he was running away to Argentina and would only come back uh, in 1953 or 1954.
1: Was he brought before the court? Hear the answer after this break, so keep it here.
0: He was running away to Argentina and would only come back uh, in 1953 or 1954.
1: Was he brought before the court?
0: Many years later, it took a long time until he was brought to court in 1973 for participation in murder in a couple of hundred thousand cases. But then he was profiting from a proper German justice he had a heart attack in court, and uh, the doctors would say that whenever he gets into rapid movement or into rough action, right. he might suffer from a heart attack again and die. So the case had to be closed and he carried on living for 23 years. Ridiculous. That's yes. absolutely incredible.
1: Now, let me change tack. I read that the first ever such train ran on June 14th, 1940, running from Tarnow in Poland and that it was commemorated a few days ago in Poland with an identical journey. Firstly, can you confirm that date? And secondly, do you believe that such a commemoration was appropriate?
0: Well, it is a very difficult question to answer. I'm not arguing with anybody, but... We would say that certain trains from Vienna and from a place in Czechoslovakia by late 1938 are to be considered the first systematic deportations.
1: But is it appropriate to commemorate such journeys by repeating them?
0: I would not do it, but I am not criticizing other people about how they do commemorating.
1: How many visitors do you get to your part of the museum?
0: half a million visitors every year and about 80 percent of them make the way to the railway collection so that would be roughly 400,000
1: what about school parties do you get those
0: oh yes more than 50 percent of our visitors are school parties it is part of the education program but I'm not an expert on what and how 10 or 12 year olds can learn about the Holocaust by having a look at the car I think children learn more about tolerance by interaction.
1: Are these school parties from a large area or just from Berlin?
0: From a large area. We are surrounded by the county of Brandenburg. And I think all of the school children from that area come here. And you may keep in mind that Poland is only 50 miles away from here. And we have free entrance for school children after three o'clock in the afternoon, and every day you see three to five buses with Polish schoolchildren standing outside the museum
1: entrance. That's wonderful. What's the optimum time that one should spend in your museum, and how long do people stay?
0: We have a survey about visitor behavior and visitor qualities, and it is interesting to see that the average time that a visitor spends in the museum is nearly two hours. That in fact means the museum is too large because within two hours you can't see it all. So many of our visitors, that's also part of the survey, come two or three times. The most important feedback that I heard, and that was quite heartbreaking, that I once met a lady from Hungary who had been transported in one of those cars and that she was absolutely upset. She would say, why don't you put a gas chamber on display? So this went for me, for my heart and for my belief, all the way wrong. I wanted to inform about the participation of the railways in the Holocaust and she was thinking that we put the Holocaust on display as something the Germans had done all right. That made me think quite a lot, but we did not change the exhibition, as I believe that the feelings of a survivor are very important, but that is a different group of museum visitors to the younger people or to those who did not live in World War II.
1: It's widely known, and we've already touched on that, that the whole German population in those days denied any knowledge of that subject. But with that amount of rail traffic, there must have been many people involved, from the cleaners of the boxcars to the signalmen, quite apart from the railway administration. Didn't they talk to family and friends, who in turn talked to their family and friends? This kind of talk goes around very quickly. And when the train stopped at the station... Surely, the noise of humans in a boxcar must attract attention. How could the whole country deny knowledge of this? Or was all the rail personnel prohibited to speak?
0: That's a very complex question. After the war, many of the railwaymen, as well as the policemen, would say, oh, I was not allowed to talk to my family. There are quite a few books saying that this was only true to a limited extent. You must also keep in mind that other scholars found out that the German population profited from Hitler. They profited from buying the property of the Jews that had been deported, or they were profiting from jobs that were getting vacant when the Jews were sacked. This is part of the national psychology that when you take part in a crime or fraud of another group, you are not inclined to talk about it afterwards. I'm not embellishing this, but I'm trying to explain why there is so little description of it. The part that the railways played to a certain extent was not getting very close to the extermination places. I know that in Belzec or in Sobibor or in Treblinka, of course, the trains were pushed into the extermination camps, and it is clear that the men knew what was happening there. But if you look at the number of those people who were actually having a look, the number was not very large. That's not to say it was a secret, but I think that the pressure on them to talk about it was not as strong as was the pressure on SS men, who, though they were doing their duty, so to speak, (laughs) felt the moral power to talk about it. It somehow had to get out of their minds that they were doing something that a few years ago was a crime, and now they do something in the idea of the government.
1: It's now 70 years since the Holocaust, more than two generations later. What is the attitude today of Germans to such a museum? Do they support it or are they fed up hearing about it?
0: I think that today, in particular after the end of the Iron Curtain, that there is a new interest, a new wish to know among the younger people. But I'm surprised myself, and you could see that when the book by Daniel Goldhagen was on sale, that many young people went to the book release because they were thinking, we don't know it in detail, we want to know more, and we want to learn about it. You are certainly right that those who are uh, 70 or older say, oh, it's enough now.
1: Apart from the denials, by the perpetrators of these crimes, should such denial of the German people not also remain as a blot on German history of the 20th century?
0: You are certainly right in suggesting that, but you will know that within England or within America the denial of the Holocaust is not a crime because in those countries the freedom of speech is being considered to be more important. Um, I think you cannot control thinking anyway. So I personally find it difficult, not as to the Germans, but as to everybody, to penalise false thinking. I think that's the wrong way.
1: Herr Gottwald, Curator of Traffic on Rails at the German Museum of Traffic and Technik in Berlin. Thank you for having come on my programme. This programme was first broadcast some seven years ago. And I apologize for the deterioration of the telephone sound. Where do we go from here? It is now two years since the first outbreak of Covid-19 hit Israel. According to the Ministry of Health, to date, there were 1.79 million cases of COVID infections and regrettably 8,318 people died from the disease. Worldwide, more than 5.5 million people have succumbed to COVID-19 in its different variations. This month, the numbers have spiked and in Israel, between January 4 and January 17 alone, 387,214 new infections were recorded. The effect on the economy is bordering on the catastrophic. Dunn & Bradstreet report that the GDP for 2020 has fallen in the whole world to a minus of an estimated 4.2 percent. For the Euro area, the report is minus 7.5 percent, and in Israel we have a 3.7 percent fall. Only China has grown 2.2 percent in 2020. On the other hand, the Jerusalem Business Pages report, a study by in & Bradstreet, that Israel's economy grew by 7% in 2021, beating the global average of 5.9%. Israel's high-tech industry was the key source of that growth. The entire global economy, and the Israeli economy in particular, showed an improvement in economic and business indices in 2021, after it was significantly affected by the coronavirus in 2020. Dun & Bradstreet is a consulting company that provides commercial data, analysis and insights for business. The good news is that the Israel Finance Ministry forecast a 4.7% growth in 2022, as private consumption and tax revenues continue to rise. The political situation in Israel today is unstable. The government, although it describes itself as unity government, is more diverse, more discordant than ever, and comprises ministers from the Yamina and Likud parties on the right, to labor and merits on the left, as well as from the Arab United List that pursues its own interests and aligns with wherever it sees advantage. The government is deeply polarized and operates on a knife-edge majority, dependent on every vote. In practice, it means that every bill that comes before the cabinet needs a substantial number of amendments before it can be agreed. Such is the fate of a cabinet that even includes Arabs. If you wouldn't know it, you would never believe that Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, leader of the Yamina Party, and that the voter base that brought him to power was from the modern orthodox sect of society. His policy is unrecognizable from that he promised before the election. His political position today is the best example that, as a person's power increases, their morals diminishes. In a letter to his bishop, sometimes in the 19th century, Sir John Dalberg Acton wrote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. It is a pity that we are today able to apply this maxim to the leader of the Jewish state. I've said it a dozen times, that Bennett has turned 180 degrees in order to retain his position as Prime Minister. I suppose that he reminds himself of the famous quote from Alfred Lord Tennyson, which, in his mind, he changed to, "'Tis better to have had power and lost, than never to have had power at all,' because according to an amendment to the Basic Law and the Rotation Agreement, he has to hand the Premier Ministership to Yair Lapid on the 27th of August, 2023. Whether the government will last until then is doubtful, having regard to the narrow majority and the many opposing voices. According to opinion polls, If an election would be held today and if Yamina would join with Likud we could expect a right-wing majority government. If Netanyahu signed a plea bargain and if he can avoid the clause mole turpitude it may be even under his leadership. In my opinion that would save the country from further collapse into dictates of the Arab parties in the present government. Opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu is indicted on several cases of having broken the law. He is now deciding on whether to sign a plea bargain which implies that he is guilty. If in a plea bargain he can avoid the close moral turpitude, he may even lead the next government. If that term is included, then he could not hold any official position for the next seven years at which time he would be 79 years old. That's today's age of the American President Joe Biden. The following are two definitions of the crime of moral turpitude. Here is the first. Wicked deviant behavior constituting an immoral, unethical or unjust departure from ordinary social standards, such that it would shock a community. A second definition. It is basically a crime that was done recklessly, or with evil intent, and which shocks the public conscience as inherently base, vile or depraved, contrary to the rules of morality, and the duties owed between people, or to society in general. Those are unfortunately not easy or clear definitions. Do you believe that this description applies to any of the actions for which Netanyahu stands trial? I am very interested to hear your view. so please write to Walter at Israel National Radio, one word, at gmail.com, where you will always get my personal reply. At the beginning, I asked, where do we go from here? It is likely that the COVID-19 virus will appear in two or three more variants, hopefully of lesser intensity, and then it will remain as an occasional nuisance that can be eliminated by a real once-in-a-lifetime vaccine or, in due course, be developed as part of the annual flu shot. As to the country's future, there is no doubt that we shall remain here as a state. However, if we continue on the present path, the Zionist dream that drove us to return to our ancient homeland will be replaced by just another state where Jews are simply a large part of the population, a situation that we could have long ago had in Uganda or Birobidjan. The ego-chasing opportunities by our politicians created by the country's uncertain political situation, has driven some hopefuls to insanity. Therefore I repeat that it is imperative for this government of Bennett to fall and to be replaced by one that views our country as the inheritance of God's promise, first to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21, Confirmed to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 3, and then again to Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 13. We have waited 2,000 years to have finally returned to our ancient Jewish homeland, and no manner of modern politics or political correctness will change that. One of the main players in world politics today is Russia, and here is a short history of its development. What we call Russia today was always a very large area of Eurasia. From 1721 until 1917, for almost 200 years, it was the Russian Empire, arguably the largest in the world, known as Imperial Russia, and ruled as an absolute monarchy. The effect of World War I caused considerable upheaval in that country, which led to a revolution of the working classes in 1917, and the overthrow of Tsar Nicholas II, ending century of Romanov rule. A bloody civil war finally ended when in 1922 the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, was established, covering the same area, but made up of 15 socialist republics stretching from the Baltic and Black Seas to the Pacific Ocean, an area of more than 22.4 million square kilometers it was the world's largest country, covering a sixth of the world's land area. Although a union of 15 national republics, its governments and economy were highly centralized in Moscow. In the meantime, Nazi Germany built up its war machine with the intention of establishing hegemony over Europe and Eurasia. In a maneuver of deception, the Nazis signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, and they remained allies until June 1941, when the German armies invaded the USSR. The rest is history. Following the defeat of Nazi Germany, politics between the Western countries and the Soviets polarized into a rivalry, mainly with North America, that became known by George Orwell's description as the Cold War. Between 1988 and 1991, there developed an incessant political and legislative conflict between some of the republics and the central government in Moscow. President Gorbachev started to lose control, and in 1991, the USSR disintegrated as a result of the leaders of three of the Union's founding and largest republics, the Russian, the Ukrainian, and the Belarusian, declared that the Soviet Union no longer existed and 11 more republics joined them shortly thereafter. Russia became officially the Russian Federation. Greatly reduced, it now has a land mass of 17.13 million square kilometers. Russia's head of state, the president is empowered to appoint the chairman of the government, the prime minister, key judges, and cabinet members. The president is also commander-in-chief of the armed forces and can declare martial law or a state of emergency. Today, it is President Vladimir Putin, a former KGB officer, who served alternately as prime minister and president since 1999. He now has extended the two constitutional terms to serve as president, so that it may keep him in office until 2036. This places in doubt the government's (laughs) description as a democratic state with a republican form of government. The actions of the Russian government point to the belief that President Putin is intent on increasing his country to the size that it was in bygone times. Therefore, the relationship with Russia is once again under considerable strain because of their expansionist policies. But there were other occasions when the West battled against Russian expansion, for instance, the Charge of the Light Brigade, during the Crimean War in 1854, a failed military action involving the British Light Cavalry. In 2014, Russia invaded and subsequently annexed the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. This event took place as a result of the wider Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which is once again on the verge of developing into war. Israel has a very good relationship with Russia, despite being pressurized by the Biden administration in the U.S. to cool it or risk consequences. Because Israel receives considerable aid from the U.S., our government has in that respect to walk a diplomatic tightrope. It is at this point that it was planned to bring you an interview with the Russian ambassador to Israel. But understandably, current events involving his country are keeping him busy, so he postponed it to a later date. Finally, Deputy Minister Yair Golan of the Far-Left Merits Party, who should have been sacked from the Knesset for his choice of words to describe so called settlers, has been at it again using the same words. Commenting on a violent attack on left wing demonstrators by masked men, allegedly so called settlers, this despicable individual wrote on Twitter, I quote, If they aren't subhuman, what should you call them? How much longer is this most unpleasant creature allowed to be a member of our legislature? He should be sitting at the Mukata in Ramallah instead of remaining in Knesset. That's a sign that in Bennett's government, religious Zionists are considered a nuisance. And with that rather unpleasant thought, I've come to the end for today. If you have any comments, suggestions or even criticism, please write to Walter at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com where you will always get my personal reply. So until next time, this is Walter Bingham, wishing you a pleasant and warm week. And please remember that your elderly neighbors are housebound during this cold weather, so check if they need anything. Goodbye. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel
0: Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska. And I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea.
1: My name is Basper, I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava and I'm calling from the rolling hills of Maleadumeen, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Da from Malay and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom!
2: You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.